thankful to be here this morning with you all and uh, enjoyed last night and visiting with a number of you and look forward to visiting with the rest of you after services. I'm thankful to be here and uh, especially to have the opportunity to preach, uh, to open up God's Word and draw nourishment for our souls from it and to render to God the fruit of that, which is praise. Our text this morning is going to be Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. The context of this stems back into Deuteronomy, where I think we're, we're rather familiar with the the story of the Exodus, how that God had raised up a man named Moses uh, after about 400 years that Israel, having started with Jacob and his family of 70 people, moved by a famine, Joseph having been sent before, they end up in Egypt, settling in Goshen just outside of, of Egypt, or just outside the main city there. For 400 years, Jacob's family was there, grew supernaturally into this huge nation of people, not the typical proportionate growth of a family of 70. They ended up being, in some estimates, between 1.5 and 2 million persons. Well, you know the story, Pharaoh being threatened by this huge host of people and also seeing an opportunity to have slave labor and to build his empire on the back of slaves, uh, he began to strategically oppress them and bring them into bondage. And so several generations would pass with this, with this slavery mentality being woven into the the psyches of these Israelites. They were large enough probably to have taken over their own captors, but they were slaves. And they'd been slaves, many of them, for all uh, their lives and for whatever they, uh, existence they'd had on earth. That's all they knew. God raises up a man named Moses. His very name means drawn out. And so he would, God would use him to draw his people out uh, of Egypt and to send them across the desert into the promised land, a land that God had promised to Abraham a couple of generations back in their lineage Abraham was the father of all these people, if you go back far enough. And God had promised Abraham that through his son uh, Isaac, he would raise up a seed that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through. In fulfillment of this, God would rescue his son Israel um, out of Egyptian bondage and would take him to Canaan's land, right? Well, if you remember, one of the most exciting times in this whole event was whenever God sent these ten plagues, defeating strategically each of the ten main deities that the Egyptians worshipped, that the Israelites were very familiar with and probably were tempted to worship, defeating them, the god of the Nile, the god of flies and frogs and, and health, and um, eventually God would defeat even uh, sending this, this death angel would take the life of firstborn sons and, in a sense, break the back of Pharaoh breaking his heart of stone, and he would finally let the people of Israel go into the wilderness. Well, about two, uh, about two months after they, after they supernaturally crossed the Red Sea, and then the waters came upon the army of Pharaoh, this huge supernatural, probably the most supernatural, obviously supernatural event of all the Old Testament, the splitting of the Red Sea, and then the subsequent bringing of the waters back upon Pharaoh's army, the defeating of this, the greatest dynasty there that had been known, its army, and this this nation of slaves escaping unscathed through water. Passing through the Red Sea, this had, been, had to be the most exciting time in, in Israel's history. God was obviously for His people who could stand against them. And they go into the wilderness. And for about two months, they wander across the wilderness uh, through Sinai. And they end up at the borderland of Canaan. They end up at the Jordan River, I believe on the east side, trying to head over into, uh, into the Canaan land to possess it. You know the story? They send out spies because they know there's inhabitants of the land. They don't just want to willy-nilly or you know, naively send their, their women and children and men over and be annihilated by some, some army on the other side. So they send out some spies. And uh, two spies come back, Joshua and Brother Caleb here, came back and they had good reports. And there were ten evil reports from ten other spies who went over there and saw that this, these nations over there um, had walled cities. Remember, this is, a, this is the Israelites were slaves. They didn't even have weapons. They didn't have armaments. They didn't have um, machinery they could go up against the city with. And they said, there's no way we can defeat these people. You know, God must have something else in mind because this land's already occupied. There's no way we can occupy this land. And so they come back and the Bible says they brought an evil report. And it struck fear in the hearts of all those people that had crossed for two months looking forward to getting to Canaan, this promised land, and then... Here the dreadful news that there's no way we can take this land. This is a fairy tale. There's no way that God can do this for us. Of course, in that meantime, they ran out of water and they ran out of food and God had fed them with, um, with manna and He had uh, rained it down and He provided for them with water out of a rock. So God had been with them the whole time, but that generation, as we read in Psalm chapter 95, that generation 
uh, could not enter into that land because after hearing the, the description of the ten, uh, ten spies, they said, we're not going to go over. If you want to go over, Moses, you can, you can do it. Uh, and you can die trying, but we're not going to go over and do that. Well, then, of course, they changed their tune a little bit, but it was too late. They said, okay, we'll go over. It was too late. And God said, this generation will not enter to my rest, and they will wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all of them are, everyone 20 years up and over, until they die, until their carcasses literally rot in the wilderness. Then, after 40 years, then I'll take my people into the Canaan's land. Well, for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness. And God, through the hand of Moses, mediates many provisions. He feeds them with manna and with quail. He provides for their needs, um, again, supernaturally. He provides for the needs of two million people in a desert where there is no food, where there is no provision, where there is no supermarket, where there are no uh, shopping outlets where they can get new clothes. And we read that God provided for their clothing so that it never wore old. And their, their shoes were never too small, even though they grew. Supernatural provision for 40 years in the wilderness. But after the 40 years had been completed and the time had come for them to, in fulfillment of prophecy, in fulfillment of this command to go into Canaan, this land of rest, the time came for them to now enter into that land and cross the river. But Moses, as you remember, um, he was included in a number that couldn't pass over for a different reason. Moses had, had struck the rock when he should have spoken to it and God said, you're not going to enter in. So Moses couldn't enter in. Sort of like David couldn't build the temple, Moses couldn't enter into Canaan. But someone else would be raised up by the name of Joshua. And so we pick up in Joshua chapter 1 where we've come 40 years in the wilderness of literally waiting out this curse until it's over. 40 in the Bible um, being the number of trial. Waiting until this, this trial is over, this testing, so that they can fulfill God's promises. We come to Joshua chapter 1 in this huge transition period for the Israelites. All they had ever known was the leadership of Moses. All they'd ever known was God feeding them from his hand to their mouth in the desert. And now... They're being called upon. This new generation that were between the ages of birth and 20 years old are now the leaders, and they're commanded to go across Jordan. So that's what's going on in this, in this passage, and we're going to see God commissioning Joshua in this new work of taking his people across Jordan into Canaan. Let's just read the entire chapter. Joshua chapter 1. Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that I have given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness of this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law, which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not thou from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, and then shalt thou have good success. Haven't I, have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the host and command the people, saying, Prepare you victuals. For within three days you shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. And to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to half of the tribe of Manasseh spake Joshua, saying, Remember the word which Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you, saying, The Lord your God has given you rest and hath given you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of Jordan, but ye shall pass before your brethren armed all the mighty men of valor and help them until the Lord give your brethren rest, as he hath given you. And they also have possessed the land which the Lord your God giveth them. Then ye shall return unto the land of your possession, and enjoy it, which Moses the Lord's servant gave you on this side of Jordan, toward the sun rising. And they answered Joshua, saying, All that thou commandest us we will do, and whithersoever thou sendest us we will go. According as we hearken unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee, 
Only the Lord thy God be with thee, as he was with Moses. Whosoever he be that doth rebel against thy commandment and will not hearken unto thy words and all that thou commandest them, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. This passage is an extremely exciting passage. If you've waited 40 years for this day to come, and now you're three days away from crossing over Jordan, this is exciting. This, I mean, the word of the Lord came to Joshua. The word of the Lord didn't come very often. Matter of fact, I don't know how long it had been since the word of the Lord came to Joshua. But 40 years had been accomplished, and the word of the Lord came to Joshua saying, Get up and lead this people across Jordan. As we read in, read in the latter portion there, we find that, that the Reubenites and the Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh, actually their inheritance was on uh, the Egypt side of the Jordan. So they already had, in a sense, been enjoying their land, enjoying their prospects. But the rest of the tribes were called to go across and inherit the land. What I want to do this morning, <coughs> what I want to do is, is to, first off, to see what's going on here uh, in its own context, um, to see the commands that God gives, the sort of secondary commands that God gives, to see that Joshua's response and how he then turns his command and leadership towards uh, the officers and towards Reubenites and Gadites and, and Manassites. But then I want to use this as, for the remainder of our time, to use this as an analogy for us as New Testament believers and to see how this, um, to see how this is literally ultimately fulfilled in the person of Christ and how that a commission then goes out from Christ us. So I want to title this, this message this morning, Joshua, Jesus, and the Obedience of Faith Among the Nations. Because we find that just like the exodus out of Egypt <coughs> was a microcosm of something greater to come, the exodus of God's people led by Christ Jesus out of bondage, out of darkness, we find that this entering into rest also, the New Testament tells us, is, is a picture of a greater rest to come. We find in the first couple of verses that God gives this command, this primary command to Joshua, namely to lead Israel into Canaan. He says, <coughs> Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass the Lord spake unto Joshua, and he said this, Moses is dead, therefore arise, go over Jordan, thou and all this people unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. He continues to tell them that he reminds them of the promise that he had made to Abraham, and he further says that wherever you go, wherever the sole of your foot treads, that will be yours. Uh, even the river Euphrates, uh, towards where the sun goes down, it'll be your coast. So God reminds Joshua of the command, but he also reminds him of the promise, which is huge because there's a reason Joshua should have courage in this situation. There's a reason that Joshua should be eager to obey God. And that is, this is not some arbitrary command, sort of like, other commands in the Bible we could probably go through and find where we find that there's no particular promise associated with it. We find here that there was a promise associated with them going across and inheriting it. This is, this is actually a similar type of test of faith that Abraham went through when God said, you know, I'm going to show you a land that you've never been to, which of course would be the land of Canaan. You've never known it before. Now, pull up your tent pegs, get your family, get all your possessions and strike out and I'll show you where you're to go when you're going. Now, while that was a huge command, it wasn't without promise. The promise was, I will take you and I'll direct you to a land that you'll inherit. What do you think about Abraham later in his life, whenever he had finally had this son of his, of his old age, Isaac? And now Isaac was his, his uh, probably late teens. Um, and God had evidently fulfilled the promise. He would give him a son. And Abraham was looking forward to the day when through this son, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But then God tells him to take his son up into the Mount Moriah and slay his son. But again, that is an that's not an arbitrary commandment because God had promised all the nations of the earth to be blessed through his son. So Abraham goes, believing, as Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, he felt so strong in his conviction that God would keep this promise that he, he figured in his mind, you know what, if I kill my son, God's probably going to raise him up from the dead because I know he's going to fulfill that promise. So whenever God told him to do this great feat, it was not without promise. Well, it's the same way here. God commands him to go into this land of walled cities, this land that's already occupied with inhabitants of land that aren't going to be happy about someone coming to displace them. But Joshua can be eager to go across because God has already demonstrated his faithfulness in keeping his promises, and that is what he's to be relying on. So God gives his primary command to lead Israel to Canaan. But we see in verses uh, 5 and 6, we see him describe this promise. In a sense, he is assuring Joshua that this mission cannot fail, that this mission will ultimately succeed. He says there, verse 5, There shall not be any man able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee 
I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. This is quoted in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, where it says, um, Don't be afraid of man. Don't be given to covetousness, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. God will be with us. He continues and says in verse 6, Be strong and have a good courage, for unto this people shall I divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. So this wasn't just a short-term, superficial promise that God was making to Joshua. He was telling Joshua, in a sense, to hook himself onto, I have this mental image of someone uh, repelling or something. You know, as you're, you're climbing down a wall, or even if you're climbing up, you can take your harness and you can hook it into these eye bolts that are in the side of the cliff, right? Um, these eye bolts, this cliff, everything here to secure Joshua are these promises that God has made generations before. And he is miracle after miracle provided so that these promises can be fulfilled. And here he tells Joshua, you're the one that's going to fulfill them. You cannot fail because I will not fail thee. Be strong and of good courage. Be courageous, Joshua. For unto this people thou shalt divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Enemies, notwithstanding. Walled cities, notwithstanding. Humanly speaking, insurmountable odds, notwithstanding. I will not fail you, and so you cannot fail. So there's a primary command, but it's accompanied by this, this promise that hooks him into this long lineage of promises that God started when he gave it to Abraham in Genesis chapter 2, or Genesis chapter 12, and verses 1 through 3. So in a sense, if we just step back and think, what's going on here in this sort of... this this long stream of redemptive works and acts, we find that Joshua is the appointed one, uh, the appointed deliverer, to mediate this fulfillment of these promises. And of course, as a New Testament believer, we're, we can get really excited about this because um, this is not just the mediation of the fulfillment of promises so that the national Israel can inherit the, nation, the uh, geographical land in Israel. But this has huge significance. This has significance even to us today. That Joshua was called to be the guy to deliver them into this land, a people protected by God, supernaturally provided for by God, through whom the Messiah would come. So this is a huge deal. It's fulfillment of a, a major promise. And it's going to be mediated through Joshua, of course, whose name means Savior. So a command is given and a promise is given. And Joshua is told that he will be the one to divide this inheritance, this long-awaited fulfillment of this promise. He will be the one to bring about its fulfillment concerning Abraham's biological lineage and seed. We see thirdly in verses 6 through 7 and then in verses 8 through 9 that there are two secondary commands that are given. In other words, God is not just going to give this big command, go across and you'll inherit it. He's going to tell him how he's going to do this. Especially, he's going to tell him with what attitude he's to go across. Verses 6 and 7, as we just read, he says, you're not just going to go across. You need to be strong and have a good courage. He commands him to be courageous. In other words, he commands him to act according to this promise. If we were just striking out our own strength, if we were trying to, um, to live out our Christianity uh, just based on how strong we are, based on how great our vision is, based on how, um, uh, our own potential, then we don't have much reason to be very courageous. Because the cities are walled. Because the inhabitants of the land are fierce. There are giants. But if we realize that God's kingdom is, uh, is something that He is building, then we can be courageous. And not just can be courageous, we're actually commanded to be courageous, to be strong and a good courage. And we may stop for just a moment and take inventory and ask ourselves, do I live out my Christian life courageously? And if not, I would have to say, in my own case, it's directly related to the fact that I'm not hooked into the promises of God that I really am trying to do this on my own, that I'm sort of, I'll, I'll take a little bit of, okay, so this is how you're supposed to live the Christian life, and then I'll run with it in my own strength, thinking, thinking that it's based on my own potential, my own faithfulness, my own ingenuity. And of course, that's never going to work. If I'm not courageous, it's because I'm not trusting in the bigger global purposes of what God is doing in the world in, in the little parcel of land that I occupy wherever I'm at. Verse 7, Only be thou very courageous. He reinforces this and commands them once again. Be strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law. A lot of the times what keeps us from doing what according to the law is fear. We're controlled by fear. We're held back by fear. And the reason we're, not, we're fearful is because we're not courageous. The reason we're not courageous is because we're not, we're not seeing the big picture of what God's trying to do. We're not seeing ourselves as a small part of the greater work that God's doing. We see, our, see ourselves mostly as a big part of the small work that God's doing. And we are so overwhelmed by that. Only be thou strong and very courageous. 
And of course, if you're courageous, he says, this is necessary so that you can observe to do according to all the law which Moses, your servant, my servant, commanded thee. Don't turn to the right hand, don't turn to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. But then he gives a second command, a secondary second command, and it has it relates to the law itself. In verses 8 and 9, he tells them to be consumed with the law. Verse 8, this book of the law that God had given to Moses, um, the writings of Moses, but certainly the Ten Commandments, we're, we read of all that in Deuteronomy and in Exodus. A lot of communication had happened. The Pentateuch, more or less, Genesis through Deuteronomy, was in the possession, um, at least certain parts, parts of it for sure, were in the possession of Joshua this time. And he says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. Notice he didn't just say thy, thy head or thy mind, but thy mouth. This, is, this was the authority of Joshua. When he commanded the people to do this or that, it was according to the law. He was standing on the authority of God. That would be the source of his authority and his leadership. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, and then shalt thou have good success. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Now, if you were in Joshua's shoes, what would your response be to this? Because this, this is a suicide mission, humanly speaking. To tell these people to go across, these are people that really can't defend themselves very well. They, they, I mean, literally, they've been eating food that's been falling out of the sky. Um, they, don't even, they don't even have fields. They have no infrastructure for military action. And you're going to go across and you're going to try to take over the lands of these people that have armies and that have fought off each other. I mean, these are established civilizations. This is a suicide mission, unless you believe everything that God told you, which was, I will not leave you. I will prosper you whithersoever thou goest. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. I'm mindful of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus, I love how Jesus was so practical. He was not a pragmatist, but he was very practical. And when Jesus is talking, he's, he's giving us sort of a theology of worry and a theology of being courageous. In Matthew chapter 6 uh, and in Luke chapter 12, um, he sort of echoes that again. He, he reminds us of the fact that God is watching over us. We're to be confident that God is caring for us, that His providence is, is woven into our lives, that it's overseeing, that His presence is there, that He, you know, that a bird can't hit the ground without His permission, sort of thing. But then He just stops and says, you know what, and you know what, this worry is not helping you one bit. Who, by setting their mind to it, can, is, can increase their stature one cubit? What is all this worry actually doing to help you? And there's nothing. So not only are we being disobedient and we're reflecting unbelief in God, but worry doesn't help one bit at all. Of course, it, it hurts us. It paralyzes us. It makes us fearful. It makes us unwilling to, to accept challenges, to pursue opportunities. But worrying never helped anybody. Sometimes it, it's probably one, a fallacy of survival that if you, if you worry about something enough, then it'll sort of cushion you away from the danger. If I can just worry about it enough, be anxious enough about what could happen, then it won't happen. It doesn't work that way, right? And so he says here, be courageous, do not be dismayed, do not be afraid, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. We find that Joshua responds to this by then in turn, obeying God, and turning to the next, in the next line of command, turning to the officers. Now these are obviously not the very same people, but perhaps a similar, um, in, this, uh, in this pecking order of authority, similar to uh, the men that Moses had appointed under him, was it 70 or so, that were, uh, that under Moses' leadership, when Moses had first started at the beginning of the 40 years, trying to judge the people um, and see, plead their cases and hear them and counsel them. And it was overwhelming because two million people coming to him just wouldn't work. And so Jethro, his father-in-law, said, you're not able to do this. You need to appoint other people that can see the more menial uh, questions and help people out in the harder cases they can bring to you. And so he did that. These officers are likely those that same type of people, of course, a generation removed. Those who were under the authority of Moses and now Joshua. And he turns to them and he commissions them. We see in verse verse 10, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the host and command the people, saying, Prepare you, prepare you victuals. Some people say victuals. For, <laughs> For within three days you shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. So we have that, how's this word going to get out? If, if here's Joshua, sort of at the top, and God commands him to lead the people across, the people have to be uh, activated. 
They have to be commanded to go across themselves. And so it goes down to, the, to those who are officers. And they're told to go through the, the host of the people and to tell them to prepare uh, their belongings. For within three days, they would pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land, which the Lord your God giveth you, give you to possess it. And I think it's of note that when they did get over, the, the game wasn't over. Once they passed the Jordan River, and again, when the priests went first, uh, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, that the waters split once again, people passed over. There was still many battles to fight. There was still much obedience to be had, but they were closer to inheriting this rest. So at the end of the three days, of course, the journey wasn't over. But this is the first step in them doing what their, what their forebears had not. Pass to the host, command the people, saying, Prepare you uh, all your things, for within three days you shall pass over this Jordan. You'll go in to possess the land, which the Lord giveth you to possess it. And he, of course, reminds them again, this is God commanding us, and God who's going to pave the way and provide the way. Well, then we see a third group of people. Not only does God come to Joshua, and then Joshua commissioned the officers to tell the people, we find that Joshua commands directly the Reubenites, Gadites, and those of the half-tribe of Manasseh. We see in verses 12 through 16, And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh spake Joshua, saying, Remember the word which Moses, your servant, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God has given you rest and has given you this land. They had already inherited their portion and their inheritance. Verse 14, Your wives and your little ones and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of Jordan. Uh, it's actually on the west side. They went to the east side. So they're remaining on the west side. But ye shall pass before your brethren armed, all the mighty men of valor, and help them. So they had some fighting men, but it wasn't anything like uh, the city of Jericho or those other people. So here we have the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. Because they'd inherited the land, all their children, all the possessions, their farms, and whatever they had they'd done on that, that western side of the Jordan River would remain. But they themselves, who had already inherited their rest, who had already entered into their rest, uh, and, and reap their inheritance, were now commanded to go before their brethren, armed, and to lead the way so that their brethren could inherit their rest. Verse 15, Until the Lord has given your brethren rest as he has commanded you, and they also have possessed the land which the Lord your God giveth them, then ye shall return into the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses the Lord's servant gave you on this side of Jordan toward the sun rising. I guess that is the east. And they answered Joshua, saying, All that thou commandest us, we will do. And whithersoever thou sendest us, we will go. I love that attitude. Like they're, they're not complaining. They're not saying, Wait, wait. We've, this is where we're supposed to be. We've already, we've already entered into our rest. We were obedient, right? But they don't even give them any lip. They say, We want to go over and we want to help our brethren inherit their portion of the land. And they even further establish, and if, I think if you read uh, Numbers chapter 35, um, uh, you read where they dialogue with Moses and they promised them that they would do this. That when the time came for their brethren to inherit their land, that they would, it's actually Numbers 32, that they would help in this way. And they respond by saying, We will go uh, whithersoever thou sendest us. And according to all that Moses uh, told us to do, we will hearken unto thee. Um, and those who, those of the tribe of, of the Gad, of Gadites and the, uh, uh, the Manassites, um, if there was anyone who would dissent, Anyone who would not go along with this, complain, it says, that we put to death. So there was this wholesale obedience and fervor in helping their brethren um, reach their promised land. Now this is, uh, obviously has a lot of historical merit. It has a lot of merit within the redemptive history up until that point of God bringing his people there. But there's something even more significant that I think even we find ourselves caught up in this narrative that is unfolding before us. That we are long since past this portion in it, but I think it, it can act as a as an analogy for us even today. I want to be, I want to start completing this analogy by first pointing out that Joshua himself is a a type or a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ in, in a lot of profound ways. Um, matter of fact, there are people who preach sermons on that. Joshua as a type of Christ. But just to point out a couple of of obvious connections between Joshua and Jesus, uh, they share the same name, Yeshua, um, in the Hebrew. Uh, is transliterated Jesus and uh, Jesus in the Greek, and uh, it means the same thing. It means Savior. In Matthew 1 and verse 21, the angel came unto Joseph and said, Your wife's going to conceive and she's going to have a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. You're going to call him um, Savior, for he shall save his people from their sins. They have the same exact name. In fact, when the translators translated uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 45, they actually... Um, when they're talking about Joshua, they translated it Jesus. 
the same exact, we find the same thing in Hebrews chapter 4 when talking about Joshua, they translated it Jesus. But in a more theological sense, we find that Joshua comes on the scene after Moses had, had uh, been, his life had been taken, he had gone off and he had died. He wasn't, he was 120 years old, but his strength hasn't, hadn't faded. He wasn't, he wasn't ready to die, but it was God's time for him to die. And so he went off and he died and uh, no one knows where his body was laid to rest by God. We find that when Joshua hits the scene, this Savior, the one that's going to do what Moses couldn't do, the one who was going to take the people of God in that they were uh, in, in their inability under Moses, in their own rebellion, in their own sins, that banned them from the land, now under a new Savior, he's going to deliver them into their rest. So what Moses could not do, Joshua is going to do. And this echoes, I think, all the way to Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, where you find the Apostle Paul saying, for what the law could not do, in that we were weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, uh, how does that go? For sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So the law, good and wonderful, um, a reflection of the heart of God, it couldn't save us because we can't keep it. So the law is weak to save because of our flesh. Moses, of course, is a picture in the Bible of the law. The law and the prophets, Moses represented the law. And so I find, I think, in Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, we have Moses and Elijah, the picture of the law and the prophets there, standing beside Jesus, and then uh, this voice coming out of heaven, them disappearing, and God saying, this is my son, hear him. The law has spoken, the prophets have spoken, and they've spoken about my son, and now he's here, now listen to him, because he's their fulfillment. We find Moses, a representation of the law, the law can never get us into rest, because we can't keep the law perfectly. Even in our own lives, even if it, even just on the level of us having a walk with Christ, we cannot have a joyful, hope-filled, peaceful walk with the Lord just keeping the law. Our relationship with God is according to the spirit of the law, and it is according to the gospel, and it's according to forgiveness and atonement and redemption and reconciliation and everything that Christ provides for us because we're in need of it, because we are lawbreakers. What Moses could not do because of the weakness of the Israelites in not obeying the law God sent a man named Savior, or a man named Joshua, to deliver his people into this promised land. Of course, Jesus would do that, and we'll see a little bit more later. So in a sense, Joshua is, or Jesus is, the true and better Joshua. Um, just as Jesus is the true and better uh, Adam, the second man Adam. Whereas the first man Adam uh, represented all of mankind, but then he sinned, and through him death, entered, and, death and sin entered into uh, the human race, and through him... We are all condemned and under the wrath of God. So righteousness reigns through the obedience of Christ, just as death reigned through the, obe- through the disobedience of Adam. Christ was the new and better Adam. Christ is the new and better no- Moses. He's the true and better Abraham, Isaac. He's all these prefigurements of Jesus Christ, all these, these foreshadowings of this one that would come and fulfill this promise, the seed of the woman to redeem God's fallen people. Here we find Joshua as one more link in the chain of foreshadowings of this great one that would come. Jesus would be the true and better Joshua, sent by God to fulfill the promises that were given to Abraham about a people uh, in every nation, tongue, and people that would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. So we have Jesus in the New Testament mediating or bringing to fulfillment the promises that God made to Abraham. Whenever God told Abraham that through this seed that I'm going to promise you, um, all the nations of the earth be blessed, he wasn't just talking about that focal geography of Canaan. He was talking about something much more exciting, um, something that involves all the nations of the earth. Because through the lineage of Abraham, Jesus would come. And through the gospel, this would be spread to every corner of the earth. And the Gentiles would be grafted in. So Jesus is now this greater Joshua to mediate the promises of the covenant God made with Abraham concerning spiritual Israel among all the nations. The true lineage of Abraham, which the Apostle Paul tells us is by faith and not merely by natural biology or physical lineage. There's a lot of verses that we can uh, we could go to about this, but I'm going to try to limit this. Um, why don't you turn to Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, we find a, a, one of these prophetic psalms that describe something that was it was novel at the time because God had set his affection in a unique way on Israel. But you have all these other nations of the earth that are just sort of left out to dry. <clears throat> but in Psalm chapter 2, we find that even in the Old Testament, there are these hints at God's kingdom being worldwide. Um, 
that God is doing something not to the exclusion of all people, but uh, that encompasses the entire earth. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. What's God's response? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree... The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now what is God going to do for His Son that He has begotten, He's brought into the world um, and set upon the holy hill of Zion, that He's raised up as, as head over the church, that He is raised up as Lord of all, the one to whom He had given the name, which is above every name, the one under whose foot He's going to subdue all His enemies. What is He going to do? He says in verse 8, Ask of me, son, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled by the little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So initially when we see the nations raging against God, against his people, his anointed people Israel, and then against the anointed one that is set up over his people, initially it seems like this relation between this exalted son and the heathens or the, the uttermost parts of the earth is that of judgment. You'll take a rod and you'll dash them in pieces. You'll subdue them. We find that that's not the totality of God's plan. There are those who are exhorted here to be wise and instructed. There are those who will fear the Lord and rejoice with trembling. They will kiss the son and they will put their trust in Him. This phrase here, blessed are all they that put their trust in Him, is found in numerous times in the New Testament, that type of language. Blessed are they that put their trust in Him. Those who put their trust in Him will not be ashamed. Those who put their trust in Him will not be um, disappointed, because He's the one in whom God has invested all authority in heaven and in earth. So we have even here in Psalm chapter 2, this, this glimmer, this foreshadowing of what God's going to bring to pass through His Son, whom He has established Lord of all. So Jesus is fulfilling what Joshua only did in a very small way. But then we find, so go ahead and move along, and we find that in our passage in Joshua chapter 1, not only does God raise up Joshua, the Savior, to do something that Moses couldn't do, that Israel couldn't do on their own, but that he's, Joshua is going to then turn to the officers and command them to go throughout the people and tell them to pack their bags, tell them to get ready, to tell them to command them to prepare themselves to enter into rest. I think in the New Testament we find that even in Jesus' earthly ministry we find that there was a unique group of officers or apostles, people that were called by God uniquely to be the, the harbingers of the kingdom, the apostles. He would command them to be um, the, the foundation stones of the church. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 says that, that the church is built upon the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Jesus would command his apostles to go into all the nations and preach the gospel and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe everything that He had commanded them. And then He promises His presence will be with them. We see the Apostle Paul, of course, most of the uh, of all the apostles, the Apostle Paul is one that's highlighted the most in our canon of Scripture. And so he's a great case study for seeing what the apostles were intended to do, especially considering that he was the apostle to the Gentiles, which would be the fulfillment of, of this, all the nations of the earth being blessed. So for this, would you look in Acts chapter 26? when for the third time, Paul would be telling his testimony how that God had converted him and called him and then commissioned him. In Acts chapter 26, him relaying his story a third time, he says, I believe speaking to King Agrippa, he says in verse 13, At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard to thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Speaking Hebrew tongue, well, that would be Yeshua, right? <laughs> Not that there's tons of significance there, but it's rather fascinating. I am Yeshua, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister. And they witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee. Afterward, as you recall, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul telling his story, he says that after his conversion, 
for, I guess, three years, he went to the desert of Arabia and God committed to them all this doctrine and this truth. God says, you're going to be a witness for the things you've seen today, the things you've seen up to this point, but I'm going to tell you many other things too hereafter. He says in verse 17, delivering me from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to deliver them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. This is Jesus telling the Apostle Paul that there's some people that need to inherit something, right? There's an inheritance that needs to be fulfilled that they need to come in possession of by faith which is in me. And Paul, you're going to be the instrument to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to life from the power of Satan, from the power of God. So here we have to the power of God. So here we have I think in a very striking way, God commanding Jesus Christ himself, Joshua, in a sense, personally speaking to Saul, uh, which was his Jewish name, uh, named after King Saul, which is a Benjamite. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. So he was, I'm sure, very proud of his Benjamite kingly name. Uh, and he'd then be called Paul, which is a Roman name, which is significant because Paul would be, as a Jew, uh, as a Pharisee, uh, he would now be a Christian preacher sent to the Gentiles. So now he has Paulus as his name, a Gentile Roman name. Paulus, I am sending, I'm delivering thee from the people and the Gentiles. I'm not sure exactly, maybe, maybe you've studied that more and you have an understanding of what that's actually talking about, but it seems to me on its face to be saying, um, I'm going to take you out of this people, you who are an unbeliever, you who don't know Jesus Christ, you who are on a mission for self and self-advancement and the furthering of a religion that is now rejecting its Christ, I'm going to deliver you from those people and then send you back to them. I'm delivering you from the very people. You who are one of them, and now you're going to be sanctified and then sent back to them to open their eyes as I've opened yours and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power and authority of Satan under the power and authority of God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith which is in me. Whereupon, verse 19, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. The Apostle Paul would now go among the people and would now start telling them in a sense um, time is short. Prepare to enter into rest. Maybe that's a stretch. But he says, and I have done this until this very day. And now the Jews seek to kill me. The very people that I was a part of are now seeking to kill me. And now he's standing before a Roman, uh, Roman magistrate uh, and his life is in his hand. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this. Look in, in, in Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul tells the story uh, talking to the believers and he's going to use different terms as he describes his commissioning to these Christians. In Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 1, Paul says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, that which is veiled, okay? As I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, and about this mystery, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Now, it'd be fascinating to just like line up all the scriptures that talk in this sort of language, but it's no stretch at all to say that that promise started in the Garden of Eden, with in Genesis 3.15 about the seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent. But then that was picked up, uh, certainly, in Abraham when he said, I will give you a son and through whom all the nations of the earth be blessed, even the Gentiles. And then we see how uh, the, the, the stream narrows. You find where a man named David is chosen by God and, and there, then the promise was given that someone will sit upon the throne of David and will rule the twelve tribes of Israel. Um, and, of course, Jesus was of the lineage of David. And then the, the lineage keeps narrowing until we find that Jesus Christ himself, born through this lineage as a son of Abraham, uh, a son of Adam and Abraham and David. So here Paul says, this mystery has been, this, this truth has been hidden from ages in the past, but is now made known that the Gentiles should be fellow, and what's the word he uses? Heirs. As an heir, you inherit something, Right? So they are fellow heirs. That there is an inheritance they are to enter into. And of the same body and partakers of 
his promise in Christ. You see, the promise that was made in Genesis 3.15 to, to Eve and Adam, and the promise made to Abraham, and the promise made to David and others, Noah, all those covenants in the Old Testament, all those promises were in Christ, but they may not have known that exactly. And they kept looking for just a, a, probably a mere human to come along. But whenever Jesus Christ came and realized that this, this Messiah, this anointed one, wouldn't just be an anointed guy like Samson or like David or like Isaiah, but he would be God in the flesh, Emmanuel. That this Savior wouldn't be a human Joshua, he'd be a divine Jesus. The Gentiles should be fellow heirs in the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Now, in layman's terms, which is what I like to understand, um, this is exciting to me because this is not just a theological point of interest. That the kingdom started with the Jews, but then God uh, brought in the Gentiles. And of course, his, this was his plan all along. It was hidden from, age, from ages in the past, but now it's revealed to us that the Gentiles are actually supposed to be part of this um, inheritance, promises in Christ Jesus. What that tells me today in our vernacular as uh, Christians living in the 21st century is that God's local purposes for his church, like in, in Gadsden and in Cincinnati and all over the place, um, that God's local purposes are not restricted to local places. That it isn't, that, like I said, we're not a big part of God's little work, we're a little part of God's big work. That the local God who works at the local level is a global God working on a global level. And honestly, if I had one message to give you this morning, that would be it. Uh, for no reason, that thought came to my mind several times this week. What, what do I need to preach in Gadsden? What do I need to share with these people? And that thought came to me several times, and then this message came to me, and the two were unconnected, and then when they came together, it's like, well, this is huge. That God is a global God, and if we get so caught up in the little world that we inhabit, and of course, we feel like the world is you know, kind of tied around us, and we're a big part of the world, and the fact is, we're tiny. We're a tiny part, a tiny cog in a huge wheel of what God is doing in the world. And of course, that translates into... Uh, a, a small vision of what God is doing translates into pride, doesn't it? It translates into discouragement because they think, man, if this is all God's doing then, uh, in my life, then he's, it's not, not much is happening. But of course, nothing can be further from the truth. God is working on a global level. Um, so it can translate to fear and discouragement and dismay. It can translate to pride like it, like it did to the Jews in the first century who thought that, hey, God's working just among us. And, and uh, they, kind of turned the, they kind of took it the other direction and said, aren't we special? That God's kingdom is all about us, restricted us, and they're on the outside, we're on the inside. And of course, they weren't very eager to share their inheritance with others. So however this passage may impact you, I would, I would challenge you to meditate on this fact. That this is God's plan from the ages past. In fact, before the foundation of the world, He chose a people in Christ Jesus. And He would choose a nation Israel to facilitate the bringing into the world this Messiah, who would then uh, bless all people's and nations and tongues and tribes, kindreds, and he chooses to do it through the apostles. And then to bring about this last step in this analogy, the apostles or the <coughs> officers that they go to the people, then we find the people themselves, namely the Gadites and the half of tribe of Manasseh and the uh, Ephraimites or whom? That whenever they are told that you've already inherited your, your land, you've already inherited this, but now it's your job to lead the way to go across the river and to lead your brethren into their inheritance. I think we as believers, we have already been brought by God's grace to forgiveness of sins, to faith in Jesus Christ, to being sanctified, being part of this, this heirship, that we now lead the way to bring others into this inheritance, even if we've already inherited it. Because the kingdom is not about us. It's about the fulfillment of God's huge purposes that we are a small part of. Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 28 um, if you want to turn there, I want, you, I want you to see these words on the page. Maybe they'll be a little more real to us if we, we see them on the page. In Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus was about to leave the earth, when our Lord was about to ascend up on high and give gifts unto men, He says in verse 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power, and the word power there, exousia, is authority. All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. He doesn't say, I've given you a measure of gift, I've given you a measure of authority, go ye therefore. He says, I have been given all authority. I've been given authority without measure. And upon this basis, you are to go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. 
if you were to, to write out a couple of the key verses in Joshua chapter 1 and then position these verses next to it, you find that it's the same exact command and the same exact promise. The authority of God vested into His people so that they can go forth and inherit the land based on His authority and accompanied by His presence. That this promise that was made to Joshua so long ago is now made through Jesus Christ to us. And that we are to go forth in this courage, baptizing, teaching, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, as, of course, God commanded Joshua. And we are forced, I think, to ask the question of ourselves, do we respond like the Reubenites? Who Moses says, talking to the people, he says, you've already inherited your land, but uh, as Moses commanded you, you are to go before your brethren armed and to help them inherit theirs. And their response is, we will go whithersoever thou sendest us. And of course, Jesus is sending us into the uttermost parts of the earth. He's sending us globally, he's sending us locally. And the question is, are we willing to do this? Well, we have the response of the Gadites and the Reubenites and half the tribe of Manasseh. We will go whithersoever thou sendest us. Are we resolute and not just willing? Are we resolute that we are going to obey this? As Paul said in Romans chapter 1, I am ready to preach the gospel to you which are at Rome also. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation, everyone that believe it, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. That this global purpose, you don't have to be of the, the physical lineage of Abraham for this to make sense to you, but God is working in people so that the gospel can make sense to them, draw them to himself, that they may have inheritance among those which are sanctified by faith, spiritual children of Abraham. Are we willing, are we resolute to do this, and are we obedient? When William Carey was a young man and he was burdened to take the gospel, and he was, he was raised in a uh, kind of a similar environment that we live in, uh, as Primitive Baptist, sort of a heavy emphasis on, on God's sovereignty in drawing his people to himself, on God making sure salvation happens. He was raised in that environment, and yet he had a burden to uh, reach the unreached. And one, I'm sure, well-meaning minister told him, Mr. Carey, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Um, of course, we may look at that and say, well, certainly, God's eternal decree is not dependent on me. At the same time, as we look throughout the pattern of Scripture, just like that promise made to Abraham would come to pass, he chose to use Joshua. He chose to use the Reubenites. He chose to use Abraham and Sarah and them conceiving a child. He chose to use a million different things to bring about his decree. And so I think when we think about the heathen in the other parts of the world, when we think about people that are in our own lives that don't know Christ, but maybe one day will, let us not make the error of drawing the false connection because God promised it, I have no part to play. Because, in fact, God has chosen us and our aid to convert to heathen. As John Stott said, we must be global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. And what I want to leave you with is that as Christians that are living local lives, that part of what may encourage us and motivate us and help us keep our focus where we're at is to remember that we are, on the local level, part of the global level. Wherever you go, as they say, you're there. Wherever you go, that's where you are. But wherever you go, you're local. But the rest of the world and what God is doing is, is outside of you right there. And God is still working through other people in your similar circumstances. So we are local Christians. We live our lives locally. Even if we were to go to the outside of the world, we're living locally there. But we are caught up in a global movement of God to bring and to ransom his bride for his son, the Savior, the new and better Joshua that went and, as it were, went into Canaan and secured the rest for us and now brings us into the Canaan. Hebrews chapter 3 invites us. It says, don't be like those Israelites who hardened their hearts and tested God, so much so that that day was called a day of provocation, that they provoked God to anger so that he would say in his anger, in his wrath, they will not enter into my rest. Take heed unto yourselves, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, that you would not enter into this rest. May we be a people that having entered into rest will go before our brethren so that they may enter in as well, as we are but small parts of a great God and of his great work in the world. May God bless you.